Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. Our guest today is Jacqueline Rafi, and Jacqueline is, or Jackie, she is the cantor at Shomrei Torah Synagogue in West Hills, California, where she develops and directs all musical programming, creative prayer experiences, and music education. Cantor Rafi had a previous career as an entertainment lawyer before switching career paths and following her calling. She is a Wexner Graduate Fellow and, as part of her master's thesis, collected and notated Persian Jewish prayer melodies to bring awareness to global Jewish music. So we're going to find out more about that, by the way. (laughs) And she is a composer and pianist and sings in five languages. Wow, that's really amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Well, Jackie, hello, and welcome to our podcast, and thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's dive right in. Will you please tell us a bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in education? Sure. So I was raised in Los Angeles and I'm a first generation American. My parents, many generations before them are from Iran. So um, like many others who I, you know, um, I imagine experience juggling multiple identities. It's kind of what I've done my whole life you know, Jewish, American, Persian woman. Um, and that's probably informed, you know, the way that I see things. And, um, I was just ordained as a cantor a week and a half ago from the Academy for Jewish religion, California. Uh, but I began my career as an entertainment lawyer. Um, I went to UCLA law and, um, I practiced law for a few years and then switched over. Um, but for me, teaching education began with music. Um, not only my own education in music, which began when I was four, but also like my first paying job was teaching piano and singing lessons. Um, and I just so connected with that. And it, um, it really informed my teaching going forward. And a big part of being a cantor is education. Um, not only music, you know, not only music education, Judaic education, other, all kinds of education, but, um, that's where it started. And then in law school, actually, there was a class called street law um, where I went to a local high school and taught juniors and se- seniors law once a week. And that was like one of my favorite classes in all of law school. So that sounds really interesting, actually. It was very, very cool. And the students, um, it was a cool experience for them also to be exposed to a subject that, you know, normally they wouldn't learn about. That's so cool. So. I'm, I'm very curious. How did you make the jump or the shift from law to education? Um, so the, uh, it's a great question. I always felt in my heart that I wanted to be a cancer, an educator, um, you know, being an educator is so um, integral to being a cancer. And so being a cancer was really in my heart for a long time. Um, but for, you know, a variety of reasons, I um, went to law school and became a lawyer and, and thought that was maybe a more secure path. And, um, you know, it was, it was also an interest of mine, but I, there was a clear calling in the other direction. So, um, uh, four years ago there, you know, I, the place where I go to, where I went to cantorial school, AJRCA is a really amazing, speaking of education, a really amazing educational institution because it allows flexibility for people who, who work or who have families to attend school part-time to attend remotely. That's Um, amazing. 
it's, it's needed. <laughs> it's needed. Yeah. And really, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I really think that that has tr- accessibility to education, um, especially through the virtual realm has really transformed. I think the way people learn and the way people are able to move forward in life. So um, that allowed me to take classes while I was practicing law, essentially in law school, practicing law. Um, even before that, I was able to um, take some classes at AJRCA and then um, this opportunity at Shomri Torah Synagogue, where I'm now the cantor, um, you know, was kind of like a shidduch, like a match, right. um, where they were looking for someone. And I was looking also for um, this career change, and it just worked out, and I became their cantorial soloist and left law, like, um, you know, took this leap um, yeah. to a new field and kind of dove right in, you know, into the fire and um, it's been such a wonderful experience and so wonderful. And I had, I've had so many opportunities to teach at Shomri Torah and it's been a real true blessing. Um, how do you tie in being a cantor with, with educating students? How does that tie together? So there's a lot of, I mean, the, there's a lot of things that are inherent um, in terms of uh, cantorial, the cantorial, like the typical cantorial job role in, involves um, a very active role in B'nai Mitzvah training, whether that means, you know, tra- actually one-on-one training students or running or directing the B'nai Mitzvah program and overseeing other trainers. Um, it, you know, a big part of Jewish life cycle events and um, that, you know, I think has a big impact on kids' lives is the bar or bat mitzvah process. So um, at Shomri Torah, I oversee that whole process and I run the program and um, work with, you know, oversee the trainers and also train some students. Um, so that's a part. And then also the clergy and rabbi, the cantor and rabbi roles have been merging over the years and decades. And um, there's a lot of flexibility between those two. So as a cantor, you can be an adult educator easily. So I teach adult education classes as well. Um, and love teaching about, I'm going to teach a class on the female prophets of the Tanakh. Oh, that's, that is really cool. Thank you. End of this month, starting on Wednesdays on zoom and everyone's welcome by the way. So, um, I have to get that, we'll have to get that link from you for sure. Be my pleasure. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Uh, now I am very curious too, how you incorporate your Persian background into your music and what you teach and educating others. How how do you do that? Yeah, totally. So when I, when I mentioned earlier that like these multiple identities kind of influence the way I see things, I, you know, what I was referring to was kind of like, um, I think sometime uh, the way that I grew up, I I grew up at um, a beautiful synagogue, Wilshire Boulevard temple. And I think we, we were told that we were the first Persian family to join, wow. uh, which was really cool. Um, but also just kind of, I grew up in like what I call like an Ashkenormative environment where Ashkenazi Judaism was the norm. And in many, not all, but many <clears throat> seminaries, um, Jewish seminaries across the country, the norm of, of what's taught in terms of melod- music and repertoire and Nusach um, is, you know, Ashkenazic. And that is just the, that's just by nature, the majority of Jewish America. So um, I think that there's a lot of um, value in bringing different sounds and cultures and traditions um, into the, um, you know, into the offering, into the menu of what we offer in our educational and musical programs. And um, we can be really enriched by learning about the different 
cultures within the Jewish family. Um, and by the way, I love Ashkenazic culture and I love singing in Yiddish. Um, and I just, I think I myself am, am enriched, you know, learning about that culture. And so I think so too, um, when we realize how diverse we are as Jews and how we've um, inherited so many of the customs of the lands that we've, you know, lived in for so Definitely. many centuries around the world, um, we, we are all enriched by that and we're all connected and united, I think, even in our difference. Um, and so that, you know, that's what being a Persian Jew has kind of inspired me to do. And I, um, my master's thesis was on Persian Jewish music. So, um, you know, it's never been, to my knowledge, notated before. These melodies haven't been written down into sheet music wow. because it's an oral tradition, right? It's passed right. down orally. So, um, you know, Sephardic music has thankfully been notated, has been started to to be notated and there's some songbooks out there, but Persian Jewish music, you know, there, I couldn't really find any. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. So I, uh, interviewed people who learn melodies. They grew up in Iran. They learned these melodies and I notated some of them and uh, put them in my thesis and, you know, also compared Persian Jewish mu- musical modes with like Arabic musical modes and Ashkenazic synagogue modes and, um, it was kind of like this thesis highlighting Persian Jewish music, which is endangered, but also kind of um, celebrating and our, you know, diversity and the way we can unify around that. I love that you are helping to really reach out and bring awareness to the fact that many of us have different backgrounds, that we all have different family backgrounds, different countries and different traditions and so it's, it's important, I think, to really share that with others. And you do it through a musical way, which I think is really cool. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. We'll have to check out some of your music for sure. Thank you so much. I have a website, so um, it's a lot of it is there. Just my name, JacquelineRaffey.com and um, YouTube. You can YouTube my name as well, and all my music is there. Okay, awesome. We'll definitely put that in the show notes when we go back and take this up and make this web uh, interview live, we will definitely add that. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm curious in your role, how you talk about God with the various age groups that you work with, or even with within your music. Mm. Oh, this is such a good question. Yasmina. It's such a good question. Um, it's something I think about so much and I almost feel like, I, you know, I don't know if you feel this way um, as an educator, but like, I almost feel like it's like taboo to say God too much in, in modern society, at least among the, um, my demographic of like thirties and younger demographics, even twenties and teens. I think it's kind of like almost a turnoff sometimes, to, right. To say God. I feel that way too. You do you? Yeah. I and do. I, I'm curious to hear your theory of why my, my theory is, is yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, I'm wondering if our generation, and I don't know if this is right at all by any means, but if our generation has become so tied to the physical things that we do or the scientific background that we're all fortunate to experience all, all these scientific advancements. And so sometimes it's hard to remember that it's not just our success that we've really been given this success 
like God has kind of helped us to be able to do so many of these things. Mm-hmm. I don't know at all if that is right, but that's kind of what I think. I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I hear you. I think that we, we, um, I mean, I think that the, the image of God, like the biblical image of God is this like anthropomorphic human, like big guy in the sky, um, has kind of like shaped the way that the majority of society sees God. And I just think that doesn't really resonate with younger generations. It certainly does not resonate with me to see God in the way that, you know, this God of reward and punishment, um, and an angry or jealous or, uh, you know, God who's not necessarily, um, you know, again, reading the, reading the Bible from my experience, reading the Tanakh, like literally, um, that image of God, I think is not resonating. And so I think that's one. And to your point, you know, I think also, um, the American, um, motto of like rugged individualism and kind of independence, autonomy, um, which I think is admirable. And I think it's awesome to be, um, self-made and to be, and to work hard and to have a good work ethic. But, you know, um, I do think that having God, um, or awareness of God or a relationship with God can definitely bring humility and can bring an awareness of like the great miracles, um, around us that we really had nothing to do with whatsoever. Um, I, I think I really resonate with, um, when I'm talking about God, I really resonate with the Jewish idea that we're made with Salem Elohim. We're made in the image of God. And, you know, the teaching that we, we must be holy because God is holy. So it's a, it's a continuous striving to be, um, more full of compassion, more full of love, more full of goodness. Um, and, you know, just to, to be holy, it just encourages us to really transcend, um, some of our, you know, baser inclinations. And, um, I think that kind of that connection, that spark of connection between all matter, all living or non-living matter, um, that spark of connection. Um, I think that really, to me feels more, um, it just feels that it resonates more. So when I, when I sing about God or when I talk about God, I, I think God is so, um, so integral to our tradition and to our prayer. Um, and, and I think there's so many ways to interpret when we say the word God or in, when we say it in Hebrew in the many different names of God, there's so many ways to interpret that. So as educators, I think we can empower people to expand their understanding of God, what that means, how they can build a relationship with God. And that kind of expansive openness, I think, allows for um, God to like enter the conversation more. Instead of I think a, so too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like you said, important to recognize that God wants us to be holy. And if we are doing holy things, entering, we're allowing God into our lives and we're, we're made in the image of God. So if God is holy and we believe God is holy. So if we're doing holy things and we're essentially like that, I, I definitely agree with that. So, yeah. yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are on education in general, because we tend, you know, we, the Hebrew word for education is chinuch, and some people would say maybe it's more of an amorphous term. What does that really mean? How how would you define it? I, I think um, education is the kind of environment that you create um, 
And I think that the most effective education is a safe, engaging, open, pluralistic environment that encourages exploration and questioning and challenging. I think um, any kind of environment that's stifling or that's like, you know, my way or the highway, um, I think does not is not conducive to building the most expansive and richest kind of education. And actually AJRCA, where I um, went to Cantoral School, which is also a rabbinical and chaplaincy and um, master's of Jewish in, in Jewish studies school, um, it's it's a pluralistic school. It's one of the few pluralistic seminaries. And I, I felt so um, much more, I felt like my education was really strengthened to have those kinds of different perspectives and to be able to, you know, have healthy debates and disagreements with students, professors, you know, it, it felt, it felt like the environment, um, created allowed for a very expansive type of education. So that's, that's how I would define it. Mm -hmm. I can see, I can definitely see that. How would you, I'm curious how you see Chinuch as uh, coloring your definition of education. I think it's, it's the experience, not just having the teacher educator sitting in the front of the classroom, listing off or lecturing, giving that student the ability to really learn without it being that face forward teacher just lecturing. Totally. Sometimes I think in Hebrew school in particular, I mean, that's, that's been my background. I was, I grew up going to Hebrew school and um, I've taught in several Hebrew schools, and I think sometimes it could be a little bit too lecture focused. Uh, can we like go on a tangent here for a second and talk about Hebrew school? Sure, I don't know, <laughs> sure. I don't know your experience, but I'm finding like really sadly that many of the people that are my age now, I talk to them and they say, "Oh, I hated Hebrew school growing mm. up. I like had to go. I was forced to go. I hated it." Yeah. And then also, you know, I teach part of the job is teaching Hebrew school and um, some of the students just no matter how much time and effort you put into making an, a lesson super engaging and fun, some kids will love it, but some kids just don't want to be there. That's it's like elective. Fun. Yeah, it's elective education. And even even I'll say like the bar and bat mitzvah process, like, you know, a lot of the kids many, most of the kids don't know what they're reading. They don't understand. They, they know how to read and decode Hebrew letters, but they don't understand. They don't comprehend, sure. what, you know, what they're reading. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Like, how do we make religious school and Hebrew school fun and engaging <laughs> and ex- make kids excited to be Jewish and not like oh. it's something their parents are forcing them to do. And then as soon as they have a bar about mitzvah, they're out of there and they're they never fun again. I feel like this ties into the, the next question that we typically ask about the biggest challenge. I think a lot of the Hebrew school or religious school educators that we have interviewed have mentioned, how do we keep, how do we engage these students first of all? And then how do we keep them engaged so that they want to continue learning and just even want to continue being Jewish in their future? And unfortunately, I don't think we, we figured it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also, I guess I I was quite the anomaly. I always loved going to Hebrew school. I always enjoyed learning. Me too. (laughs) But my parents were also always learning. So I guess I I had that example. I definitely think the home plays a big part. Do you find that to be the biggest challenge you faced 
as an educator or even as a, as a cantor? You know, I think that there is a really fine line. There's this balance between tradition and innovation. And I always try to um, walk that balance sensitively, but I think it's a really exciting balance if you get it right, because so much of Judaism is based in tradition, but I also firmly believe that if tradition doesn't change, then it fossilizes and it dies. Um, you have to change with the times. I mean, there's no other way to survive. You have to adapt. You have to change. And Judaism historically has adapted. And that's, For sure. I, you know, that's the, I think the ingredient, one of the ingredients to its great um, success and wisdom. So I think the biggest challenge um, that I find that I, I want to rise to this challenge is how do I um, be part of, in a, in a sensitive and, and um, respectful way, a movement to uh, of of like adaptive Judaism, where it's remaining relevant to the younger generations while still remaining, you know, having its integrity of, in right. Jewish tradition. And um, I, I really think that's why Torah is one of the reasons that we call Torah tree of life. Why does it keep? Why does it keep surviving through the generations? Is because you know educators throughout. The centuries, the millennia, we read Torah every year and we find a way to make the parasha relevant to it's our true. what's going on in the world. And so how do we do that for kids? You know, I think, I mean, I don't want to be like, I don't want to sound like, you know, um, I, I, I don't, I don't know how extreme we is the right extremity to go, but you know, maybe Hebrew school needs, can be more experimental and there can be, you know, um, if somebody says, Hey, like the bar about mitzvah doesn't resonate with me at all, but like, I'm super into a mitzvah project. Like what would happen if that child ran a huge mitzvah project and inspired a bunch of other kids to do a mitzvah? And like, that was their induction into adulthood. And then they walked away from their bar about mitzvah, like with a lot of, um, you know, passion and joy for being Jewish. And, and that was their connection to Judaism. Now, you know, we would say, well, but they didn't learn the prayers and they didn't learn these parts that are integral to being Jewish. And I think that that could be, some would find that very problematic. And, you know, maybe I, I'm also mixed about it, but I don't know. Do we, do we tailor a bar and bat mitzvah to what somebody loves because that'll keep them connected? Or do we, yeah. you know, that these are the kinds of things I'm struggling with. It's like, how much it's do hard. you push the yeah. envelope? Yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah, it's, uh, I definitely think our challenges are cut out for us. So how do you stay motivated? When I continue to learn um, and expose myself to new subjects, it inspires me to want to continue to teach. My motivation is continuing to learn. I love that. You stay motivated. (laughs) Um, Also, by continuing to learn, talking with other educators. I'm curious what advice do you, would you give to new educators who are just getting started? I would say you learn best by doing. So throw yourself into the ring, (laughs) um, experiment, teach, try new ways of educating. Um, And it's, teaching is procedural, just like in a lot of ways, learning is in some ways learning is procedural, but teaching is a skill. There's only so much like theory, right? About education that you can learn. You have to eventually um, just throw yourself in there and see what works. That's Learn by true. doing. And we're going to make mistakes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's good advice. That's good advice. <laughs> Definitely. You're going to make mistakes. Don't be so hard on yourself. Just learn from what learn from what happened and move on. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're hoping that 
also with this podcast that it kind of uh, gets that conversation going and maybe gives new leaders that chizuk, that strength to push mm-hmm. through and continue because the first year could be difficult when you're just thrown into the classroom and figuring out, you know, teaching and educating, but also handling maybe some behavioral things that might come up in the classroom because kids have their moments, right? And just get in there though and do it and probably be in touch with other educators and get that support. Yes. Yes, exactly. Now you mentioned before about Torah. How do you think we can best help our students build a, a proper Torah foundation? You know, I think it's similar to what we were talking about before. I think we got to keep it relevant for them and um, make it relevant to their lives today. Um, as we move farther and farther away from, you know, the 3,000 years ago, um, 3,000 plus years ago, mm-hmm. um, when our tradition teaches that, you know, Torah was received, as we move farther away from that civilization, that culture, and life changes so much, I think we need to um, – you know, the Torah is full of wisdom and it's, I think the beauty of it is that it's, it is adaptable and it is relevant. It has these fun, you know, um, it has these teachings and values that are timeless. So because of that, I think that it's our job as educators to, um, to make it relevant and to find ways to creatively, um, show how Torah is relevant in our lives today. I agree with that. What do you think successful Jewish education would look like in the future? Oh, that is a challenging question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think I would tie it to your previous question. I think it's, it's gotta be able to adapt. I think Jewish education has to be adaptable. You know, the way that we, with the pandemic, virtual education, like really took off. And, um, in our, I can say in our synagogue, the rabbi and myself, we have like so many more attendees in our virtual classes now because people can join at home. Um, which is awesome. And, you know, things, of course, like as the, as we're transitioning back to, um, to in-person kind, kinds of gatherings and educational things, I do think that this, um, virtual education is really going to stick. I, um, and so I think Jewish education, um, needs to adapt to whatever's happening and it needs to, I think should be constantly reinventing itself and staying fresh and, um, you know, ex- ha- having like new modalities, um, to, to, you know, remain engaging and, and to keep, to keep students engaged. Definitely. What do you think that means for Hebrew school education? Do you think it's something that's probably always going to be around? Do you think it might kind of start to dwindle and maybe turn into something else? You know, I think it's it's easy to look at Hebrew school education and the evolution of it and say, hey, it used to be three days a week. Now it's two days and now it's one day. And and it's, you know, I think an instinct, even my instinct is to be like, oh my gosh, is it going to disappear? Like it's it's getting diluted to one day a week. What can you learn in one day a week? Um, but maybe, maybe we look at it not as... Um, you know, a tragedy, but as a challenge to see like, okay, so society and education is changing. Um, how do we tackle this change? So how do we make 
you know, if, if it's, we have to think about why has it become one day a week? Is it because kids are getting involved in lots of other extracurriculars? Is it, right. is it because, you know, so I think there has to be some exploration as to why, and then to, again, adapt and be flexible and say, well, if Jewish education is no longer going to be the model of three days of religious school, what if it's like a bigger investment in like, you know, a, some kind of like sleepaway experience in Hebrew school where you like go on a trip or like a lot of resources are poured into a trip to Israel or a lot of resources are poured into camp or, you know, I I think we just have to think about what is speaking to and resonating with youth um, and then approach it from that perspective. Maybe the three days a week model, um, even though, you know, it's a, it's a very rich model and you get three days a week education, but maybe that doesn't work today, not because kids are not interested in Judaism, but because that model is no longer, you know, effective in society because of the way society has changed. So I think I, I feel optimistic that there's still a way to provide a rich Jewish education. We just have to think on our feet. I can definitely hear that. I'm curious too. Um, what's the role of family education in the broader scale? That's a great question. I think it plays a huge role. And I think that one of the things we can do as educators is to bring in families um, and encourage families and parents um, and siblings to be part of that educational process. So, um, you know, because everybody's um, family life is different and some people grow up with, um, you know, grow up in an environment where there's a lot of Jewish education at home and some grow up in an environment where there isn't a lot of Jewish education. And I I don't think that, um, you know, um, I think whatever situation somebody happens to grow up in, I think it's our job to provide an environment where an educational environment, you know, we can't, because we don't have control and, and also the kids don't have control uh, in the yeah. type of family setting. So what can we do? Well, we can provide opportunities for the whole family to learn. Hopefully we can all as educators continue to offer that and continue to grow and like you said, bring holiness to our lives, to the world. Amen. And uh, God willing, we should move into a bright, peaceful future. Amen. And uh, so grateful, Jackie, that you joined joined me this evening. And we, I really enjoyed getting to know you a bit more and, and your background. And uh, yeah, thank you for the time. Of course. Thank you. So nice talking to you and hope to talk again soon. Definitely. We should for sure reconnect. Would love that. Yeah. Perfect. Well, have a wonderful evening and let us toast. You too. Thank you. Take care.